I'm very pleased to be able to introduce um, fellow board member and my friend Ken Carmiol, who has shockingly been an antiquarian bookseller for more than 40 years. Obviously, he goes to the gym. His business, Kenneth Carmiol Bookseller Inc., was established in 1976 in West LA. And his bookstore, which has maybe about 2,500 titles on hand at any time, mostly of continental books printed before 1800, is currently based in Santa Monica and operates by appointment. If you're in California, make an appointment. I've made a couple of Viking raids there and it's been well worth it. Uh, Ken is an active philanthropist, chiefly providing financial support to libraries and educational programs in Southern California, as I will now delineate. He's a director of the Book Club of California and serves on numerous library advisory boards, as well as the board, the board of the UCLA Graduate School of Education and Information Studies, and of course, most importantly of all his board engagements, Rare Book School. Ken has established endowment funds at UCLA and the University of California, Santa Barbara, his alma mater. The UCSB endowment is for the purchase of rare books and for an annual research fellowship. The endowments at UCLA, and there are many, include an annual lecture series on the history of the book trade at the William Andrews Clark Memorial Library, an endowment for the purchase of rare books and manuscripts, endowments for financial aid to students in the UCLA Graduate School of Education and Information Studies, and an endowed research fellowship at the UCLA Library. In 2016, he created the Kenneth Carmiol Endowed Lecture on the History of the Book Trade in California and the West at the Book Club of California. And the inaugural lecture was given by our very own John Crichton. I understand no other goods or services were exchanged Ken currently serves on the advisory committees of the California Rare Book School, the UCLA Research Library Advisory Board of Visitors, and the Library Council at UCSB. He's a member of the Director's Advisory Council of the William Andrews Clark Library and of the Board of Visitors of the UCLA Graduate School of Education and Information Studies. Since the 1970s, Ken has served three terms on the National Board of the Antiquarian Booksellers Association of America. He was president of the Southern California chapter of the ABAA in 2012 and 2013 and is a director of the Book Club of California. Do you ever sleep? He joined the Rare Book School Board in 2018 and spoke most winningly at Rare Book School during our 2015 summer session. Understandably, then, Ken received the Distinguished Alumni Award uh, for 2011 from the UCLA Library and Information Studies uh, Alumni Association. His article about collecting books in the digital age appeared in the Journal of the Book Club of Washington. More recently, and closer to home, 
Ken has been responsible for shaking down his bookseller colleagues for seven scholarships to Rare Book School, which will be awarded in the upcoming fall in that scholarship cycle. His topic tonight is Shakespeare in Virginia. Please join me in welcoming the stalwart Ken Carmiel. I, I thought I should mention, uh, in case anyone was wondering, I do not believe that William Shakespeare ever visited Virginia. <laughs> but uh, this, uh, this book talk begins with the Boston 2015 Book Fair, which takes place every November. The Boston Show is the smallest of the ABAA fairs with around 125 exhibitors. I share a 9 by 12 foot booth with one of my colleagues, Greg uh, Gibson of 10 Pound Island Books, and usually ship just about six or seven boxes to exhibit, including half a box of supplies and catalogs and about 100 to 125 books that I hope to sell. I try to get my booth set up as soon as possible because I want the other exhibitors to see what I have brought to the fair to, to sell to them, but I'm also very eager to see what the other dealers have brought to the show that perhaps I can buy. It's always a bit of a race to get around the floor quickly before all of the goodies have been spoken for. That is, uh, books that were under-evaluated uh, and, and or underpriced by one of the other exhibitors. I've evolved a simple strategy that allows me, who exhibits at this show without an employee, to do both, set up my booth and also run around the floor trying to find things to buy. My system is pretty simple. I, it's to unpack one box completely, uh, putting these books uh, where I want them in my two glass cases and uh, my one folding bookcase each with their descriptive cards. As soon as I finish box number one, I take off to hit the floor. And for about 10 or 15 minutes to run around to look at books that are being unpacked uh, by the other exhibitors. I continue this same routine. Box number two, run around, box number three, uh, until I've unpacked and displayed all of my books and hopefully also have made some good purchases from my early book scouting the booths of the other exhibitors. I usually have a number of dealers that I've, I've uh, bought from successfully at previous shows, so I have their, their uh, names uh, uh, in my mind, and I want to get around to visit them first, to scout their booths first. At, the, at this show in 2015, I unpacked box number one completely and left the booth. On my way to see a dealer on my list of the priority dealers to visit, I think I w it was DeWolf and Wood I wanted to visit, when a book in, an, in another booth that I was walking past caught my eye. The exhibitor's booth was the McBlains, Sharon and Phil McBlain from Connecticut. They are well-established dealers who have been in the trade as long as I have, and they always exhibit in Boston. They have an interesting stock, mostly in the area of... Uh, of their specialty, which is ethnographic books, 
books on the people and cultures of the world, a lot of travel material, mostly of the 19th and 20th centuries. But like everyone else in the trade, they, they could turn up just about anything. I saw, I saw an old calf volume uh, lying on its side and asked, what is that? Phil replied that it was a 17th century English book, a translation of one of the classical authors, but unfortunately its front cover was off, needing repair. I stopped, uh, stopped in the booth to take a closer look. It was the Oxford 1673 edition of the works of Juvenal and Persius, two early Latin authors who wrote satirical poetry, here translated into English by uh, Barton Holliday. That was the name of the translator. I had owned this book before and knew that it was a collectible edition. It is, in fact, the first time that both of these authors in the Holliday translation are published together, and it's desirable for its many copper engraved plates. I was looking over the book when Phil said, by the way, this is an interesting copy. There are some 17th century names in it, and there's also a contemporary list of books owned by one of the names found in the book. I asked the price. He replied it was $450, less 20%, or 360. I had sold this book before in the range of 1000 to $1,250 and figured it would take 200 or $250 to nicely repair it, or a total investment of 550 or $600. And, and additionally, this particular copy had some interesting previous uh, ownership. So I put my card in the book and said, I'll take it. Could you please send it to me when you get home? I really didn't think it was anything that special. There were three names in the book, clearly English provenance, the first of which was Sir William Skipwith, who in 1686 inscribed it to someone else. Uh, but British 17th century ownership of a British 17th century book isn't that notable. And the same can be said for the one page, only one page, manuscript list of books uh, from the late 17th century. All of this process took about three minutes, and I was out of the McBlain booth to continue my hunting at the show. About a week after the Boston show, the Juvenile and Purchase volume from the McBlains arrived. I collated the book to make sure it was complete. This always needs to be done before sending payment for something. And I put it on the floor of my office with a few other volumes waiting to go to my bookbinder for repair. I would wait to do my research and catalog the book when it came back from the binder in about two weeks later. It was at that time that I examined the volume closely in order to work up a description. Uh, there were three names on the front paste down end paper. At top was Sir William Skipwith, who presents the book to one Major Edward Dale, September 16, 1686 below which is a second inscription, Edward Dale to Edward Carter. Also, the end paper contained the engraved book plate of Edward Dale. This was Dale's copy with his book plate. It had, it had been given to him in 1686, but at some point later in his life, he passed it along to an Edward Carter. That was pretty clear. Now I just had to figure out who were these people. I, I first went to Google and looked up Sir William Skipwith in the 17th century and, and didn't find much 
other than a William, who was the son of one Sir Grace Skipwith. The, fa the father had emigrated to um, uh, the Virginia colony in the mid-17th century, where his son was later born. I was very doubtful that I'd found my man. This Sir William's birth was recorded as circa 1670, making him only 16 or 17 years old in the year 1686. I thought rather a young man to be, be presenting this book to someone else. Uh, so I went on to Major Edward Dale and was rewarded with a great deal of biographical information. It turns out that Major Dale was another Englishman who emigrated to the Virginia colony probably in 1650 after King Charles I was executed in 1649. Dale was a royalist and the royalists had been defeated by the parliamentarians who took power in England under the leadership of Oliver Cromwell. Some royalist families decided to leave England for a new life in the American colonies at that time. I learned that Major Dale was one of the earliest settlers in Lancaster County, Virginia. He had married one of the Skipwith women, uh, Diana Skipwith, uh, whose father, Sir Henry Skipwith, had decided to remain in England. Major Dale and Diana's daughter, named Catherine Dale, married a Thomas Carter. Edward Carter, whose name appears on the end paper, was their son. So uh, he was Major Dale's grandson. Sir William Skipwith, who presented the, book, uh, presented the book, was in fact the young son of Sir Grace Skipwith. The, the father, Grace Skipwith, had, di had died in Virginia in 1683. Diana Skipwith, uh, the wife of Major Dale, was Sir Grace Skipwith's sister. Uh, who, uh, and thus the aunt of Sir William Skipwith. Major Dale was William's uncle. Seems that the Skipwiths, the Dales, and the Carters were all related. Um, all were very active in early colonial Virginia life. Uh, Major Dale's career was quite distinguished, serving as High Sheriff of Lancaster County. He also later became a member of the Virginia Colony Legislature. He, of course, held the rank of major in the county militia. Edward Dale today has a historic highway marker next to his land in Lancaster County. So I now, I now knew that the volume I had in my hand was owned by 17th century American colonists. This was far, far better than 17th century English provenance. Finding books from the libraries of 17th century American colonists is quite unusual. Consider the fact that in 1650, there were only 20,000 people in the Virginia colony. How many of them would have taken many of their books on their voyage to America? Very few, I suspect. So next I moved on to the manuscript list titled at the top of the page, a list of, major, a list of Mr. Edward Dale's books, 16 February, February 16th of 1695, taken by Thomas Carter and Edward Carter, father and son. In fact, this date is exactly two weeks after the death of Major Dale. This list could have been used or could have been made for the evaluation of Dale's estate or simply served as a record for his family. The inventory of books is on the blank side of an, of an engraved map in the book. It is a list in a neat hand 
containing 34 entries. As I examined the list, I saw that Dale had owned some interesting titles, not exactly what I would have expected to find, thinking the inventory would have mostly listed theology of the day. But here was uh, Sir Walter Raleigh's uh, History of the World, 1677, Edmund Spencer's works, uh, 1679, John Dunn's Sermon, 1640, Richard Baker's A Chronicle of the Kings of England, 1684, etc., etc. Of course, there were some religious titles that you would expect to find. A Quarto English Bible, 1639, and A Book of Common Prayer, 1633. My own Juvenal and Perseus of six, Oxford, 1673, was on the list written along the inner margin vertically. They were using up all of the, the space on the page. Also, about halfway down the, down the list, I saw the entry, Shakespeare's Works, 1632 Folio. Aha, I said to myself, this is becoming even more interesting. In addition to holding a volume with 17th century Virginia provenance and with a manuscript inventory of books owned by a Virginia resident, I also found evidence of ownership of the second folio of Shakespeare's works in the Virginia colony. It is one of the titles recorded in Dale's library inventory, a book he acquired at some unknown date, but prior to his death on February 2nd of 1695. I now had to evaluate all of the facts and evidence about the volume. I contacted the Gwalior Club in New York City, which has a great many manuscript, private library catalogs and lists, um, and learned that they didn't have anything from the American colonies in the 17th century. I'm talking about manuscripts. In regard to Virginia, by 1695, the date of his death, there were now, there were now about 50,000 residents in the colony, but there were still very few private libraries. In fact, there was no book, 17th century book production in Virginia. The first book printed was, was not until 1728. Although only one page with 34 entries, this list of books was more significant than I originally thought. The next question was trying to determine if there was any evidence of other books written by Shakespeare present in the American colonies in the 17th century. I could find none. It was once thought that Cotton Mather owned a first folio. This is in the Scheide Library at Princeton, but that has since been disproved. Another possibility was William Penn, who came to America in 1682. Penn's father was known, I think he was Admiral Penn, was known to own two Shakespeare quartos, but it is unknown if his son would have traveled with these books when he emigrated to America. There is no documentary evidence that he did. William Byrd II of Virginia had one of the largest colonial libraries with some 2,600 titles at his death in 1744. It included Shakespeare's fourth folio 16, of 1685, but it could not have been in Virginia earlier than the fall of 1696, about a year and a half later, at the time of his return from his studies in England as a young man. So I asked ask myself, does my book possibly contain the earliest documentation of any Shakespeare text present in America? A strong possibility. 
At this point, I was smiling. The modest purchase was turning out to be a very nice find. I next needed to come up with a price. I called up one of my colleagues, who deals a great deal with American colonial books and manuscripts, and asked his advice. I prefaced my questions by first explaining that I wanted him to know in advance that although I hoped he would give me his expertise, but I, I would not be able to offer him the book to purchase. He said, fine, and I explained, explained what I had, and he said, at least $15,000. I thanked him. After weighing all of the facts and wanting a quick sale, I decided on $10,000 as my price. Now the question was, to whom do I offer the book? This was not an easy decision. Of course, in Southern California, we have the Huntington Library and the Clark Library, both of whom would have given this acquisition some serious thought. But I felt strongly that it should go to either the University of Virginia or to the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington, in D.C. Clearly, this volume had very early Virginia provenance. The book was owned by some of the most important first families of Virginia. Furthermore, I had a very nice relationship with the University of Virginia Library and with its uh, terrific rare book librarian, David Weitzel. On the side of the Folger, well, their central mission is William Shakespeare. And this volume, if it turned out to be the earliest known evidence of a Shakespeare text in America, would be a really big deal to them. I was, excuse me, I was also very friendly with their rare book librarian, Dandy Simone, who had been a rare book dealer for many years before entering the library world. I had to make a very difficult decision and decided on the Folger. I felt the Shakespeare connection was just too strong for it to be offered anywhere else. My letter to Dandy Simone reads, Dear Dan, please find below my description of the very interesting copy of Juvenile owned by Major Edward Dale of Virginia. I've also included some photos, photos for your perusal. I had a very hard time deciding whether to offer you this book first or the University of Virginia. You won out. Uh, I have priced the volume $10,000. One, one of our colleagues who has a great deal more experience with colonial materials had suggested $15,000, so I don't think my price is crazy. I hope you will agree. Let me know your thoughts with best wishes, Ken. Within a few days, I re received a reply from the Folger. Yes, please send on approval. I shipped it out two-day UPS and got a quick answer. Dear Ken, thank you very much for offering us this great book. Uh, we are very pleased to add it to the collection. Within another two or three days, I started receiving more emails of thanks from many people at the Folger, from the curators, the acquisition people, the director of the Folger, and even some of their trustees. Clearly, they were very excited to have this book. This was an unusual purchase for a number of reasons. First, it gave me a very nice profit. <laughs> Second, it certainly improved my relationship with the Folger, one of the great American rare book libraries. Third, it added in a small way to the world of scholarship on Shakespeare. The Folger now has a blog about this book on their website, and the book became a prominent feature 
in the Los Angeles Public Library show put on by the Folger called America Shakespeare Goes West. This, this included the show of the first folio. This was held November 17, 2016 to February 26, 2017. Major Dale's juvenile Purchase appeared in glass case number one with the descriptive card reading, the earliest known reference to a Shakespeare edition in 17th century America. Fourth, this book has provided me with the material to produce this talk. Thank you very much. <laughs>